This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Today we are interviewing Dr. Christina Ernest, biology professor at Central Washington University in Helensburg, Washington, on I-90, about 50 miles east of Snoqualmie Pass. Christina earned her Ph.D. from the University of New Mexico in biology in 1993. She now teaches mammalogy, field techniques, and fisheries, conservation, and community ecology at CWU. Central Washington University. So welcome, Christina. It's good to be talking to you today. It's a nice day over thanks, in Ellensburg. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful day over here. Oh, great. So uh, let's start off. What do you like to teach best in the biology department over there at CWU? Well, I teach all levels from freshmen through graduate students. Um, wow. And it's great. I get to teach general biology, which are those fresh new minds coming in, curious about everything. Uh, and since I study mammals, mammalogy uh, is one of my favorite courses. Uh-huh. How long have you been teaching there? Oh, a long time. Since uh, 1994 is when I started here. Oh, really? Here. Oh, that's right after you got your Ph.D. Yeah. So tell us a little about your background. Where did you grow up? How did you get to CWU? Well, it was kind of a circuitous route. Uh, I grew up outside a small town in upstate New York, actually. Oh, really? Um, and I spent a lot of time wandering through the backwoods and catching frogs and toads. And little did I know I would have a, a career in wildlife biology. <laughs> Um, I had planned to go to medical school after college, but uh-huh. discovered that I really loved being out in the field and uh-huh. liked animal behavior and ecology. So then you, you got your Ph.D. in New Mexico. How did you get up to CWU? Uh, well, I, was, I had worked for a, a year and a half or so with my husband. We were monitoring a population of desert bighorn sheep. And I realized that a lot of people doing wildlife biology didn't understand some of the basics of ecology. And I thought, oh, it would be so important to, to get involved in teaching and try uh-huh. to bridge that gap. So we were looking for teaching positions at universities and had never heard of Central Washington University, but it was a perfect fit. And we thought, well, we'll try it out for a couple of years, and here we are still. <laughs> So mammalogy is your specialty. Uh, does that involve a lot of field work? Well, it does in my case. So I'm uh, an ecologist, and I focus really on understanding small mammals like mice and squirrels, and uh, shrews, pikas. Uh-huh. And I study things like what habitats they need, where they move, how they interact with each other. So a lot of it is field work. And where do you go to do that? Over on the east side of the Cascades or where else? Well, I've studied mammals in lots of different places. I uh, did my master's work in Brazil and my Ph.D. work in Arizona and New Mexico. And then since I came up here, I've been working more locally. But for the last 15 years, I've been working 
up near Snoqualmie Pass. Ah, yeah. So you've been involved in the efforts of the Department of Transportation, Forest Service, and others to enable those safe crossings of wildlife uh, over and under I-90, uh, splitting the north and south Cascades mountain habitat. What was the condition of wildlife in the area before any highway construction took place? Well, there's lots of different species that are in the area. It's a very uh, rich area, sort of a, a bottleneck there that connects the North Cascades with the Southern Cascades in Washington State. And there are lots of species that use that area, everything from, you know, insects all the way up to, to large mammals. What was the disruption uh, to wildlife that was caused by the intrusion of roads and highways? Yeah, so... The highway does a number of things. For one thing, it, it splits up the habitat. And then there's all the traffic, so animals can get hit on the highway. And then there's noise and lights and pollution from things running off the road. So we don't know for sure what all the effects were of the highway, but we do know that for many of the larger mammals, certainly for elk, deer, mountain goats, um, black bears, cougar, and bobcats, their movements were hindered or perhaps even completely disrupted by the highway. And there, the highway crosses over streams, right? So streams were filled into small culverts, making passage across the highway difficult or even impossible for fish and salamanders, among other stream dwellers. And then for smaller animals, those with limited ability to move large distances, what we call low-mobility species, the presence of the highway might have actually deterred them from crossing uh, completely, except along stream banks, maybe under a few bridges. So we expect that for many of these species, an interstate highway would really disrupt movements a lot, especially what we see now with these increasing traffic volumes. We're increasing steadily every year, and there's an average of over 30,000 vehicles a day that cross Snoqualmie Pass over I-90. Well, about a year and a half, two years ago, there was a wolverine that was found on Mount on the slopes of Mount Rainier, and uh, for the first time in many, many years, and I assume that animals like wolverine were prevented from moving down into the south area south of I-90 because the highway was in place. Right. Yeah, so wolverines are one of the species that we're hoping will have a safe place to cross the highway now. Um, they're rarer, but they certainly do move large distances. So, so that is one of the species we're watching for. Uh, what are, what other species uh, do you know of that were affected by the I the I ninety uh, corridor? Well, some of the ones I mentioned, like um, elk and uh, mountain lions, have been tracked by the Muckleshoot, the Muckleshoot tribe, and um, their movements are definitely hindered. Um, we know from genetic studies that have been done by um, a researcher at Western Washington University that mountain goat populations are divided by the highway. Bobcats also have slow movement. Some of the fish species are just not able to, to cross the streams because 
Mm-hmm. The streams go through culverts or because upstream of the highway they put in uh, concrete blocks across the stream. So many of those species were just unable to, to move across their normal places where they, they need to access different resources, whether it be food or mates or uh, shelter. Were there populations of, say, elk or deer that were separated by the highway that, that actually, because of the concentration of low numbers, uh, they, they tended to diminish in quantity? Um, yeah, it certainly can have effects on the population sizes and just also on the movements. Uh, we know that elk have been just on one side of the highway before the crossing structures were built, and now they're moving across, so that really helps them. And there's a population of mule deer that's just on the south side of the highway towards the east end of the project area where crossing structures have not been built yet. So we're hoping that these new crossing structures will help them be able to expand the areas that they can use. What kind of accident statistics uh, have been accumulated over the past years for highway collisions? There has been some tracking of wildlife vehicle collisions. Uh, Mostly we know about that from the larger uh, species because smaller species tend to decay or get eaten by scavengers pretty quickly, so it's harder to tell. Um, But on average, I would say it looks like there are about 9 to 10 deer and elk per year um, that were killed on the highway over that project's 15 miles. And that doesn't sound like a huge amount, but what's really important here is not just the number of wildlife vehicle collisions, because that's really only part of the story. If there's too much traffic, you might not get many wildlife vehicle collisions because animals might just not even be willing to try to cross the highway. Um, And evidence we have from different sources suggests that that's probably the case for mountain goats mountain lions and and even for the elk, that they're just avoiding trying to cross the highway. So we're trying to, you know, reduce those collisions with wildlife. It's bad for them. It's bad for the motorists. But also just generally to better connect the landscape across this whole area so the ecosystem and its, its processes and the organisms in the ecosystem are much better connected ecologically than they were before. Have the crossing structures diminished the number of accidents on the highway? Right now, we in the um, half that's been completed where there's fencing, there have only been two total fatalities of elk and deer over about a seven-mile stretch um, for about five years now, four to five years. Mm-hmm. So we're really not seeing many at all since mm-hmm. uh, the crossing structures and the fencing got built. So there were also some at-level crossings that were constructed or uh, under, road constru- uh, under road crossings. Uh, what are those and uh, how effective they've been? Yeah, so we have structures for animals to cross underneath the highway. So there's one terrestrial underpass that's got native soil and plants in it. And then we also have a number of uh, culverts that have been widened quite a bit, so the stream flow is less restricted. And then we have other places where the culverts were taken out altogether and wide bridges put in. And that allows the streams to move and 
meander like they would do more naturally and also have space on the sides of the stream for terrestrial animals to move along. So we've, we've been really um, effective. We've had lots of species using them. So we've seen deer, elk, coyotes, beavers, otters, porcupines, raccoons, and lots of the smaller species as well, like mice and voles, are already using these crossing structures. Uh, pikas have been detected at a couple of these underpasses. We even had one moose crossing through uh, an underpass next to Ketchulis Lake. And, of course, the, the stream-dwelling animals have benefited from this. The uh, fish are able to swim upstream where those concrete barriers were removed. And now we see movement of fish and, and other aquatic organisms between streams and between streams and uh, Ketchulis Lake for some fish species that we weren't seeing those movements before. Coastal giant salamanders are another species that very quickly started using the streams under the highway. So the same year that these new undercrossings opened up, the coastal giant salamanders moved right in there, whereas before they they were not using those uh, really small culverts. So the overcrossing uh, east of Snoqualmie Pass was completed oh, five or seven years ago. Uh, so uh, where did the emphasis come from to build uh, the, these, these, that structure and the other crossing structures uh, across I-90. So the, the original uh, reason for doing this construction on the highway was to make the highway safer and to accommodate more traffic. So things like increasing the number of lanes and improving the structures to allow traffic to keep moving when there are avalanches, so to replace the avalanche structure that protected ca uh, cars. But to do that, um, they needed more land to expand those lanes. And the, much of the land there is U.S. Forest Service land, mm -hmm. public land. And the U.S. Forest Service has a mandate to uh, improve ecological connectivity for all the species that occur in the national forest. So they had to work together to figure out, okay, how are we going to expand the highway, accommodate more traffic, make it safer for people to travel on these highways. At the same time, we can improve ecological connectivity for all these organisms that live here. And the solution to that really was to put in a lot of different um, crossing structures that would permeate that barrier that the road created. So it took a lot of work by the Washington State Department of Transportation, working with the U.S. Forest Service, um, and people from Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, and some nonprofit organizations also were involved in those, um, those discussions, uh, organizations like Conservation Northwest. So it was a, a lot of work to do the planning to, to make this happen, to bring this to fruition. Were you involved in that planning process? No, not in the beginning of that. Um, so that was all uh, the work of other people. But very early on, before construction started, uh, the Washington State Department of Transportation approached uh, biologists and other people at Central Washington University asking if we'd be interested in 
getting involved with the wildlife monitoring that they knew they would need to do to um, be able to see how effective all this work was and and reconnecting populations of wildlife. So we started uh, doing uh, pre-construction monitoring, seeing what was there, where they were, how many, the different species um, before construction began. And we've uh, provided input on various parts of not, not planning the structure so much themselves, but we have been involved in giving input on, like, what kinds of habitat features do you need to put in the streams to make them really good for fish? Or what kinds of habitat structures do you need to put on top of an overcrossing to encourage wildlife to be able to find and use those areas? So you use cameras to uh, see, to observe the uh, mammals uh, the larger animals that are crossing uh, on the overcrossing or even in the undercrossings, but uh, how do you how do you know about the movement of fish and salamanders and smaller animals like that? Yeah, so that takes a little bit more on the ground work. So uh, Dr. Paul James is one of my colleagues in the Department of Biology here at CWU, and he and his students are uh, collecting data on stream habitats and aquatic invertebrates and fish. So they they go out and do measurements of the stream channels and the rock beds. Uh, they collect the insects and other invertebrates in the streams and identify them so they can use those as indicators of good quality habitat. And then for some of the reaches of the streams, they do very temporary electrical pulses to be able to catch the fish, and they can uh, put pit tags in them. So these passive integrated transponders that are like microchips you might put on your dog. And then they can use a scanner to detect what individuals are there and whether they've moved. So that's some of what they do for the fish and stream monitoring. And then Dr. Jason Irwin and earlier on uh, Dr. Steve Wagner were, and their students were conducting studies of the amphibians and reptiles, so toads, frogs, salamanders, lizards, and they go out and walk through the streams looking for salamanders there and frogs in the, the wetland areas. They uh, have been putting out cover boards that some of the lizards and snakes uh, like to get into, and they've also been using uh, ways to mark the animals to see their movements and sometimes use pit tags. And then my students and I have been monitoring small mammal species. So for pikas, we go out to the, the rocky habitat patches where they typically live, and we do focal observations where we watch for them, we listen for them, and then we look for their hay piles where they store vegetation for the winter. And then for the other small mammal species, we do live trapping. So we have these grids that we set up on either side of the highway and in the crossing structures and set out live traps of different sizes for a couple of nights at a time. And then we go out in the morning and see who we've caught and we identify them to species and do measurements. And for some of those, we also use the pit tags so we can track uh, certain individuals and know whether they've moved the next time we catch them. How important is it uh, that the correct vegetation be put in place for the uh, both overcrossings and undercrossings? 
Well, that's one of the, the really great things about this project is that they have worked really hard to use all uh, native materials for the habitat for these structures. So they stockpiled soils from near the site. The Forest Service had people out collecting seeds uh, from native plant species that were in the forest nearby and then sent to nurseries to grow them up. Um, all the mulch that was put in was from trees that had to be removed from the site. So it's all very local materials. So the plants that are put into the crossing structure are really important for hiding places for smaller animals and shade for the sun, and they're also food for many of the animals. So putting native plants there really helps ensure that the plant eaters, like the elk and deer and the small mammals that eat plants, mm. um, get the right kinds and variety of their, their normal foods that they would be eating and not some species that, you know, that they're not used to or wouldn't have the right uh, nutritional quality for them. I would think that uh, predators would uh, position themselves at strategic points on either side of a crossing structure to capture their prey. Does that happen? We really haven't seen that happen here. I know that's been documented in a few studies, but in many other studies they're finding that that this is not really happening, that predators may be keying in on prey um, at certain crossing structures, especially if they're really small. But there's usually enough crossing that if a few get eaten by predators, it's not detrimental in the long run. But in this project, many of these crossing structures are very large. So the undercrossings and the overcrossings, we have quite a few now that are 120, 150, 180 feet across. And with all these habitat features we're putting in for hiding places, it's much easier for, for prey species to be able to avoid predators. And uh, something interesting we've noticed from the videos we see from the cameras that were put up there, we've seen elk on the overcrossing and coyotes approaching, and the elk just go right after them and chase them off of there. So yeah. quite interesting interactions we can see. So now there are some plans to uh, provide more crossings of I-90 further east near Clayalum. Uh Are you involved in that? Yes. So, so far, only about half of this 15-mile project has been completed. So the next phases of the project will extend uh, all the way east to around Lake Easton. Um, so there are going to be a lot more crossing structures put in. Um, I and my colleagues here at CWU are involved in terms of helping think about and design some of the habitat features that will be put in. You know, the actual designs of the overcrossings themselves, like the concrete that gets put in and all that, it's, it's outside of what we do. That's for the Department of Transportation to work out with the construction companies. But, but we do help certainly with thinking about the habitat and how to do monitoring to see how effective they are. Uh, the new projects will be at a lower elevation. Uh, does that mean different species will be involved? Uh, certainly, we can see some. So as you uh, go east from Snoqualmie Pass, you're also going down in elevation into the rain shadow of the Cascade Range. So that means there's a 
the forest is quite a bit drier um, as the farther east you go. There's different species of trees and other plants. And we'll have some of the same wildlife species, of course, at the far eastern end of the, the project, but not maybe some of the species that are adapted to the wetter or colder conditions that we see farther west in the project area. So we might pick up some uh, new species that are more typical of the ponderosa pine forest and shrub step habitat. Are there some other projects apart from those uh, to cross I-90? Are there some other projects that are uh, being planned? Well, I know that the uh, Washington State Department of Transportation is now uh, working with other groups uh, along I-5 in the area west of Olympia because a lot of uh, mountain lions apparently are getting hit on the road or just not being able to cross I-5 to uh, connect between uh, the Olympics uh, and the Cascade. So they're in the the early stages of planning for some potential wildlife crossing structures over there on I-5. Are you involved in in input for any of those projects? I I am not. Um, I've got plenty of work here to do still on the I-90 Snoqualmie Path East project, so <laughs> that's, that's where I'll be working. Well, I understand that you're involved in some studies involving bats. Is that right? Well, uh, I've had a graduate student that was studying bats. I, I've long been interested in bats, but I'm not an expert on those. Uh, but my graduate student, Jenna Chapman, um, uh, that was one of the options I presented her because I felt like, oh, we really don't have any information on what bats are doing in this area. And even though they can fly, some of them don't fly that high, so they might be affected uh, by the highway. So for her master's work, she set out acoustic monitors that can record the echolocation calls of bats and identify them to species. So she set those out right at the edge of the highway near um, three different undercrossings and in the forest nearby. And she found, uh, she recorded eight, I think eight different species of bats in the forest. And all of those species were also recorded right at the edge of the interstate near these crossing structures. Um, So it suggests that bats are able to maintain their activity Um, Some of them might be foraging on insects underneath the lights of the highway, Um, but we hope that they're able to use these crossing structures. And from some of the videos from uh, the undercrossing that uh, WashDOT has been monitoring, they have seen bats flying through, so that's a good sign. Uh, And the other thing that Jenna started doing was uh, some surveys underneath the bridges to see if bats are using them roosting sites. And the bridges are all pretty new. So far, there was only very little evidence at, at one of these bridges, but we'll continue to do that kind of monitoring um, to see if these structures can provide some roosting areas for bats. What do they do for roosting areas? I associate them with caves, and I'm not aware of caves in the Cascades. Uh, there are some caves in the Cascades, and some of them roost in uh, snags, old trees that have died, mm-hmm. the cavities in the trees that were excavated by woodpeckers or other animals. Um, so, and, and there are bats that are found um, in the crevices between rocks and talus slopes. 
So there certainly are some natural structures around the area that bats can use. Um, but we know from other areas around the country, um, especially like in California and Texas, where large numbers of bats will will find places to roost, to rest during the day um, underneath bridges and then come out at night to forage. Well, Christina, we have run out of time, but uh, I, this has been very interesting, and I really appreciate your uh, letting us talk to you today. So thank well, of you course, very much. thank you so much. Okay. Well, this has been Wilderness and Wildlife, uh, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association. Our guest today has been Dr. Christina Ernest, biology professor at Central Washington University in Ellensburg, Washington. I'm Jay Shell, your host. Thanks for listening.